So a couple years ago, I was really intrigued by this idea of boredom. And so I decided that I would go around and actually ask young adults, what do you do when you're bored? When I feel myself getting bored, I tend to look at my phone. Um, my first instinct is to, yep, check Facebook or visit a website. Sometimes I look at my phone. Um, not always, though. You know, for many of us, scrolling on the supercomputer in our pockets, it's become an instinctual habit. In fact, studies have shown that about 40% of our daily activities are performed out of habit. Author Gretchen Rubin writes, Habits are the invisible architecture of our lives. So what do our habits say about the kind of life that we're living? Okay, let me give you one other scenario. Let's say that you're at the grocery store and you're at the checkout line and the person in front of you has a ton of stuff and it's going to be a while. What do you usually do with yourself in that moment? Oh, yeah, I definitely look at my phone. <laughs> I definitely look at my phone. <laughs> You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. Today's episode is where the gospel meets social media. This episode is in partnership with the Holy Post podcast. And so their co-host, Sky Jatani, is here with me in the studio today. Hey, Sky. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to team up with you, Sky. So, you know, this episode on social media, it was actually your idea. What interests you about this topic? Well, part of it is I have three teenagers, so this is a constant issue in our home, but I've also been a pastor and I've recognized that this is a whole new world we're living in and we're not talking a lot about the impact it's having on our spiritual lives. Yeah, and so today we're looking at social media in the form of habits and how these habits are actually having a negative impact on three different relationships in our lives. And as we do that, it's important to note that it's hard to separate social media from the broader issue of technology in general. So while our stories today are going to focus on social media, there are going to be times when they also refer simply to technology itself. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. The great tragedy of life is that too often we allow the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. We have allowed our technology to outdistance our theology. So that's Martin Luther King Jr. from a sermon that he gave in the year 1965. And here's the crazy part, Jesse. You know somebody is really prophetic when their words even 50 years later still seems so relevant. So recently, the Barna Group put out a new study all about following Jesus in this digital era. And here's what they found. A typical 15 to 23-year-old churchgoer today spends about 291 hours per year taking in spiritual content. So that means Bible reading, listening to sermons, praying, going to church, etc. 291 hours per year. Now, how many hours do you think those same young adults spent looking at their screens? I mean, it's got to be a lot. I mean, I've got two kids at home. They spend a lot of time with a device in their face. So maybe, I don't know, 500 hours? It's actually way worse than you think, Jesse. The typical 15 to 23-year-old spends 2,767 hours per year looking at screen media. Holy smokes, 2,000 hours. Let me break down the math for you to maybe make it more accessible. That means that they spend roughly half an hour per day on spiritual content, and to be honest, I think that's being generous. 
but they will spend five and a half hours per day on social media content. Gosh, I mean, you think about how that is forming you, you know, you think about like all these young adults that are only spending a very small portion of time allowing their faith to be formed by Jesus and the Bible and prayer, but they're letting the majority of their life be formed by all these other sources. I mean, that's a really serious statistic. And you know, these statistics bring us to the first relationship that social media is negatively impacting. And that is our relationship with God. We're much more prone to be social media followers than we are Christ followers. And obviously, the Bible doesn't speak about social media, but it does have a lot to say about what we do with our time and how the management of our time relates to our true desires. The book of Ephesians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the city of Ephesus. Right, and Ephesus was a really big deal. It was the commercial hub and it attracted tourists. It was kind of the New York City of its day. There was a lot going on there, and there was plenty to distract Christians from their faith. And so Paul reminds them in chapter 5, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. To put this in kind of contemporary language, what Paul is telling people to do is live intentionally. Live with a sense of self-awareness. Don't just be carried along by the currents of your culture. So it's about mindfulness. It's about intentionality. It's about discernment. It actually makes me think of this quote from Annie Dillard. She says that how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. You know, getting swept up by the culture, it's a really easy thing to do. And that's exactly what ended up happening to a guy named Justin Early. So it all started when one day in his 20s, Justin felt a calling to go to law school. But not just to go to law school, he really wanted to be a witness for Jesus in the business world. That was a real calling in my life. I felt like the Lord was pushing me towards this and and actually pushing me towards being a missionary within the vocation of law. So Justin decides he's going to obey this call. So he goes to Georgetown Law School in Washington, D.C., and he works really hard at it. Graduated the top of my class and got my dream job in international mergers and acquisitions at a big law firm in Richmond. And Justin, like, loved his job. Uh, He was a really good lawyer. He ended up getting married. He had two kids. And everything about his life excited him because he knew that he was doing what God had called him to do, be a missionary in the world of law. But without really noticing it, Justin had actually started to form some new habits. I think about my morning routine at that time. It would begin immediately with waking up and checking emails, work-related emails. It would proceed by showing up somewhere late. I would often be eating at my desk instead of with people. Um, I would often be calling my wife and say, yeah, I wasn't going to make it home for dinner because something came up. You know, and of course, deeply intertwined with all that he was doing was the use of technology. My alerts for all of the above, you know, this could be a social media post, a meme, a text message, an email, you know, it was all, you know, things coming through. Whatever beefs at me, it's worth responding to. You know, recent things are relevant things and urgent things are important things. I'm sure as people listen to Justin, they're thinking this isn't just a problem for lawyers because it's something most of us experience. There was this recent study by IDC that said 79% of smartphone users reach for their phone within 15 minutes of waking up in the morning. 
Yeah, so it's not like Justin questioned this habit. I mean, it's a normal thing, honestly, for all of us. That's what we all did. I thought that's exactly what you were supposed to do to, you know, be an aspiring young lawyer. Well, and so Justin keeps these habits up day after day, month after month, until one night he realizes that something is not right. I suddenly woke up one evening with what I now know are panic attacks, but just felt this sort of feeling of existential dread in the middle of the night. Didn't even know why I was awake. You know, at first he thought, oh, I'm just having a bad night. You know, I must be worried about something. This will go away. But when he started going on more than 48 hours with zero to little sleep, he decided he was going to have to do something about this. I finally went to the hospital when the doctor told me very anticlimactically that I was experiencing clinical anxiety and that that was really normal and common, as if that's comforting, and sends me home with some sleeping pills. So what it meant was that Justin had developed clinical anxiety. I'm sad to say it, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, why is that? Well, because there's a lot of troubling research that shows a correlation between social media use and bad mental health. Uh, Generation Z, so the generation that is now taking over our college campuses, are the most stressed out generation in modern American history. This is Drew Mosier. He's the dean of student engagement at Taylor University, and he's done a ton of research because of what he's seen on campus on the effects of technology and our well-being. Students come in, and this is nationwide, so not just on my campus, with greater mental health concerns and uh, higher utilization rates of counseling centers. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, I lead this organization, Love Thy Neighborhood, so we say that we're like a Peace Corps with Bibles. Like, we recruit young adults from all over the world to relocate to our city to do urban ministry. And I've actually been doing a version of this since 2005, so about 15 years. And there's no denying the fact that times have changed. You know, 15 years ago, young adults just had an easier time of pushing through awkward conversations, talking to strangers, pushing through their anxieties. So here's the deal. The people who really want to defend social media and phone use will often point out that there is no direct evidence that says phone use or social media directly causes mental health problems or anxiety. That's true. However, there is a lot of evidence, and it's growing, that there is a strong correlation between the two. So do you know what year the iPhone was invented? I feel like it was around, you know, maybe late 2007. Right, it was 2007. And that's sort of seen as the beginning of the smartphone era. Now, in 2007, right before smartphones came out, about 3.5% of kids under 17 had diagnosed anxiety disorders. But today, 12 years after smartphones have been introduced, the number of kids diagnosed with anxiety has more than doubled to 7.1%. What do you think is causing that anxiety? Again, here's Drew Mosier. For one, we talk about uh, the comparison trap. Comparing constantly the unglorious parts of your life to the fantastically curated images that everyone else is putting up on social media. If you think about what we put on our Instagram feeds, we don't put, you know, the the box of saltine crackers we eat typically. We, you know, when we put when we're at a nice restaurant, and the meal looks amazing and is plated well, we'll snap a picture of it. Multiply that by, you know, maybe 100 people that are also out to eat at various locations all over the world. And you start to realize that, oh, my box of crackers doesn't, seems really woefully insufficient (laughs) to what I'm seeing on my feet. 
And this is the second relationship that's being negatively impacted by social media. So the first relationship was our relationship with God. The second relationship is our relationship with ourselves. You know, going back to Justin, the whole reason that he became a lawyer in the first place was because he wanted to share Christ in the business world. But now he found himself struggling to get healthy mentally, struggling to get out of bed, uh, struggling to maintain relationships. And this wasn't just for like a few weeks. You know, this went on for a whole year. So I went from sort of crisis of anxiety to true mental health crisis where I was starting to, you know, have these awful nightmares and huge daytime mood swings and even suicidal thoughts were creeping in. And it was this, this question, how did the missionary become converted? And as Justin thought about it, he came to realize that at least part of the answer, it was actually in his habits. And part of those habits involved his screen time. I had assimilated to all the usual cultural habits. You know, these habits that said that every time that he had a free minute, you know, he was going to check his email, he was going to check his Facebook. Uh, Oh, you got a new notification, open it now. You feel anxious, scroll through Instagram. If you're waiting in line, you know, send a Snapchat. Oh, you can't sleep? Better watch YouTube. So this habit of whatever comes at us in our day, we approach it phone in hand and fully connected. But here's the question that's really haunting me. Why? Why can't we operate without this technology? Why can't we unplug? You mean like we know that it's bad for us because all these studies are showing that, but we're doing it anyway. Exactly. Well... I I don't know. I mean, do you have an answer for that? I've got thoughts, but I would rather talk to the people who have been thinking and studying on this stuff because they have some interesting answers. And they tell us that ultimately we don't just need to look at the technology, but we have to examine the technology behind the technology. Coming up, pulling back the curtain on Facebook. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Rachel. So recently, we asked some of our alumni to tell us how serving with Love Thy Neighborhood has made an impact on their lives. And I'd like to share one of those with you. So this is from Daisy Cooper. She recently joined a church plant in Birmingham, Alabama. And here's what she had to say about serving with Love Thy Neighborhood. That personal growth is something that doesn't go away. It like keeps happening. I left LT in knowing how I relate is how I relate like to people and to God. But yeah, it's just like I wouldn't be the person I am today had I not done this and done the hard stuff. Like, was it easy? No, it was hard. But it was so good and so rewarding now. I'm just looking back on that. If you want to find your social justice internship supported by Christian Community, head over to lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. the Love the Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sky Jatani. Today's episode is where the gospel meets social media. So we've been telling the story of Justin early. Justin felt God call him to be a missionary among law firms. So he went to school, became a lawyer. And now instead of seeing anyone convert to Christianity, he's the one who's been converted to a life that's always connected online. And along with that actually came a serious breakdown in his mental health. So I guess the question becomes, if so much social media or online usage isn't all that healthy for us, why do we do it? Well, to begin to answer that, here's a clip from CBS News of the founding president of Facebook, Sean Parker. You know, if the the thought process 
that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them to really understand it, that thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while. Dopamine hit? That's like drug addict language. Exactly, because social media is designed to be addicting. Neuroimaging studies have clearly shown which portions of the brain are involved when we engage social media. And one of them is what scientists refer to as the reward center. So in that clip, Sean Parker talked about dopamine. And one Huffington Post article says that dopamine is like our brain's pleasure chemical. It's stimulated by unpredictability and by getting small bits of information and by little reward cues, all of which are characteristic of social media use. Again, here's the founding Facebook president, Sean Parker. I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that a, that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in, in human psychology. And I just, I, th I think that we, you know, we, the inventors, creators um, understood this consciously and we did it anyway. You know, I hear all this and it, it actually makes me think of big tobacco, you know, the big tobacco companies, when they figured out that they could put nicotine into their products and that those products would still give us cancer, but if they could make us addicts, that it would make them profits. I mean, there is just, there's not a whole lot of difference between what cigarette companies did and what these social media companies are doing. They're designed to make us addicted. Right, and any addictive substance is the best business model you can possibly find because what it does is it bypasses the person's will. It bypasses their rationality. It bypasses the very thing that would stop a person from purchasing or engaging in the product. And once you own that part of the person's brain, you own everything about them. Check out this other interview, this time with former Facebook vice president for user growth, Chamath Palihapitiya on CNBC. We know for a fact that what all of these systems do, every single one, is it exploits our own natural tendencies in human beings to get and want feedback. And that feedback, chemically speaking, is the release of dopamine in your brain. And so what these feedback loops do, and they exist everywhere, in Call of Duty, in other video games, in social networking sites, they get you to react. And I think that if you get too desensitized and you need it over and over and over again, then you become actually detached from the world in which you live. You become callous, you become crude. And you live in front of your screen. So they, they talked about living in front of our screens and how we become a different person when we're in front of our screen. Here's Drew Mosier again, the dean from Taylor University, who talked about it this way. I have uh, a kid in high school, and I was at a recent soccer game of his this past fall, and there were other of his classmates who were at the game watching, and there was probably six to eight of them, and they spent probably most of the game on their phones, <laughs> sitting right next to each other but on their phones. And all this living in front of our screens is something that Drew Mosier sees as a real problem when it comes to living in Christian community and the church. I think what is at stake is a core facet of Christian theology, which is that we are an embodied people <laughs> meant to be together in community. 
if all we're doing, if we are so connected that we are pulled from that reality and from that sense of calling to our local neighborhoods, then I think that is what is at risk. And it's the impact is tremendous. Which actually brings us to the third relationship that's suffering from social media. So the first relationship that's suffering is our relationship with God. The second one is our relationship with ourselves. And the third one, of course, it's our relationship with other people. You know, experiencing so much of our life through our screens, it's made us lose the ability to do real-life relationships. So something that we did when we were reporting for this episode is we actually asked our listeners to call in and tell us about a time when social media negatively impacted a relationship. And so I'd like to share a couple of those with you. So the first one is from a guy named Ellis. Um, There was a time when I was talking to this girl back in high school, and I faced a lot of rejection because um, I would rely heavily on, like, her response time in social media. And I noticed that um, if I texted her, uh, I would get on Facebook or get on Snapchat to see if she was active and to see if she was rejecting me or not. Just very toxic and not healthy in a manner of, like, uh, relying on my happiness be impacted by the response of someone else. So we did this poll where we asked our listeners, what's something you do online that you would never do in real life? And over half the responses were actually stalking people. So like what Ellis is talking about totally makes sense. I mean, we go online and we're like into this, you know, this guy or this girl and we're like, oh, what are they up to today? You know, are they talking about me? Who else's posts are they liking? Uh, Is it a sign that there's something romantic going on between them? And so, you know, social media like, makes us weird little stalker people and neurotic. Like, it's totally not healthy at all. Okay, so that's the first story. The second story I want to share with you is actually from a listener who wanted to remain anonymous. A friend of mine and her husband are very passionate about foster care. And she asked me to be a referral for the foster care agency um, that they were going to be working with. But I also knew that She and her husband were struggling because um, he was spending a lot of time at work. Okay, so she tells her friend she's not sure she can recommend her. She's not sure how the friend's going to respond. And then shortly after, she actually goes online, and she's kind of shocked by what she comes across. And I went online and saw um, something she had posted on her Facebook about how she was very upset with people who were not being supportive with their foster care decision and were expressing concerns. And I felt like, well, why didn't you come to me and talk to me about it, about how you felt, about what I said? And here's the thing, like, I think that this friend probably would have had this attitude without social media, and she probably would have even maybe gossiped even without social media. But the reality is that this girl would not have come across it, and it wouldn't have been put out there for literally every person that her friend knew to hear about. From that point on, I thought, you know, if if she's not willing to tell me when she's upset about something, but she's going to go and talk about it on social media, then I think I want to move away from this relationship. We no longer have a close relationship. We share a lot of the same friends, but I would say that there's still some things between us. 
I look back and I wish that I had confronted her about social media posts or at least asked her about it and tried to talk to her about it. I, I think it's important to realize that social media doesn't make us into bad people. I think what it sadly does is it reveals and amplifies what's already there. It takes unhealthy social dynamics, unhealthy relationships, and kind of pours gasoline on it and makes it so much worse. It, it reminds me of the Captain America movie when Steve Rogers is still that little soldier who's kind of the twerp that got beat up all the time. And he's talking to the scientist who's going to give him the, the super serum. And the scientist was explaining why he chose Steve Rogers. And he said, because this serum takes whatever's in you and makes it more. If you're bad, it'll make you worse. And if you're good, it'll make you better. And I think that's a little bit what we see happening with social media. So then I guess the question still on the table is, what do we do? I want to tell you a story about this college professor. And he came up with what he thought was a solution that was pretty radical. Give up the phone itself and don't replace it for the entire semester. And I'll guarantee you an A in the class. So this is Reed Shushard. Uh, he's actually a communications professor at Wheaton College. But the ironic thing is, though he teaches communications, Reed actually lives his entire life without the primary communication device of his time, a cell phone. One of the biggest questions I always get is, you know, either jokingly or seriously, they say something like, well, you sound Amish. <laughs> but Reed actually lives this way on purpose. Uh, he likens it to a fish trying to explain water. I mean, if he wants to be able to understand and teach communications, then he feels like he needs to approach it from the outside looking in. But as you might imagine, you know, life in 2019, without a cell phone of any kind, it often gets very inconvenient. It's now to the point where there's certain parking meters in certain cities where you have to have an app on a smartphone to pay for the parking. And the assumption is that everybody has a phone. Yeah, and because Reed has also been seeing the negative effects of social media on his campus, he decided to offer his students an optional assignment. Go the whole semester without your phone, and I will guarantee you an A in class. You still have to come to class. You still have to do the work. It's not a free skip or pass, you know, get out of the semester from doing the work. But what I said was, if you give up your smartphone, you'll actually become an A student because you'll actually have the time to focus on your studies. You'll actually have the time to do the reading. You'll have the time to think and reflect on you know, what you're studying here. So, Sky, as Reed was telling me about this, I thought, you know, what would it look like for us to run this experiment ourselves, sort of to test this in-house? And I'm assuming you offered to give up your phone, right, Jesse? <laughs> so, actually, no. Instead, I actually had our producer, Rachel Zabo, give up her phone. Hello? Hi, Mom. What's going on? Uh, do you still have that old alarm clock in the bedroom at your house? Yeah, the same clock that's always in there. So I'm going to need it so I can wake up in the morning because I can no longer use my phone. <laughs> so stay with us. In today's episode of the Love That Neighborhood podcast, we're exploring where the gospel meets social media. This isn't actually our first time working with Sky Jatani. He's actually been a guest on our other show. Love That Neighborhood presents the Enneacast. 
To hear Sky's interview, specifically check out episode number 19 to learn more about the personality known as The Investigator. One of my favorite days, I was in Washington, D.C. years ago, speaking somewhere. I had a free afternoon. I just went to museums by myself and learned, learned things, which yeah. for someone else must, must sound like a, you know, a circle of hell. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed that. Check out Love Thy Neighborhood Presents the Enneacast by searching for the Enneacast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts or by going to lovethatneighborhood.org slash Enneacast. Welcome back to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sky Jatani. Today, where the gospel meets social media. So we've looked at some of the negative effects of constant screen use. And now the question is, what do we do about it? And one college professor offered for his students to give up their smartphone for the whole semester in exchange for an A. And I thought this was a pretty great idea. So I had our producer, Rachel Zabo, try it out. So I've asked Rachel to come in and to talk about her experience. So she's actually with us here in the studio right now. Hey, Rach. Hey. So, okay, so you did a version of Reed's assignment. You gave up your phone for how long? So I did it for a month. The assignment that Reed gave for the whole semester, that would have been, you know, maybe like three months or something. But, you know, I have a job and we have production schedules and deadlines to meet. And so, but I did it for a month. And how did it go? Well, so what I did during that month is I kept an audio journal of how it was going, and I brought some of those clips in to share with you. All right, day one with no phone. It's weird not grabbing my phone, because what's the first thing you do in the morning is you grab your phone and you check your email, you check your Facebook, you check your Instagram, so it's, yeah, it like feels weird in my body to not reach my arm out and grab my phone and look at it. Okay, day two, no smartphone. I do miss being able to listen to music at any point at any time using Spotify. So I did dig up my old, super old MP3 player, which surprisingly still works, um, so I can at least listen to music while I'm walking to and from work. <laughs> you still have an MP3 player? Yeah, so I had to dig it, like, out of the archives of my bedroom, and all the songs in it were from, like, college. Oh, so it wasn't even new music. What was on there? Uh, DC Talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, moving on. We're moving on. <laughs> Day five, no phone. I definitely feel less weighed down. Like I feel like my brain doesn't have to be in so many different places at once or like my brain doesn't have to intake so much information all the time, which I've actually found rather refreshing. This is exactly what we were talking about earlier about how we're always in this mode of multitasking and how it's exhausting and can contribute to anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. There was definitely a sense of freedom and almost like a weight lifted that came along with it. However, it wasn't all awesome and liberating. Day 12, it's 4 a.m. and I can't sleep. And I really just want to put on YouTube right now. But instead, I'm laying here 
in the quiet. Wait, so normally when you can watch YouTube, what is it that you watch on YouTube at 4 (laughs) a.m.? I like to watch Bob Ross. (laughs) He's very calming. (laughs) I've done that before. Yeah, he helps put me to sleep, too. Okay, but so fast forward a few days, and here's where the experiment actually gets interesting. All right. Day 15. Actually had to use my phone today. So I do uh, the music for the kids uh, at church on Sunday. Um, like I help lead their their music time. And uh, today we didn't have our keyboardist who um, is usually there to play with us. I didn't realize that we had new songs uh, starting this week with them and I did not know them. <laughs> so yeah, I had to get my phone out and, and learn them uh, real fast. My life without a phone apparently cannot be done. So you made it 15 days. Yeah, essentially I failed the experiment. I couldn't I couldn't do a month without my phone. And so was that the end? Like you got to 15 days and you like shut it down? Well, no, I kept going. I finished out the month, but also I thought it was rather telling like I can only go 15 days without having to use my phone for something. Yeah. So what did what did you reflect on? What did you learn from it? Any insights from the month? Yeah, so actually I've uh, made some changes to uh, my phone since doing that month without it. So I've actually turned off all my notifications. So I don't get notifications anymore for emails or Instagram or anything like that. And the other thing that I've done is I've noticed I'm a lot more prone to set my phone somewhere and just leave it there. So like if I'm at work, I'll set my phone on my desk and I'll leave it there. Or when I go home, sometimes I set it in my room and I leave it there and I don't come back to it until like I'm going to bed or something like that. Yeah, you're treating it almost like it's an answering machine from the 1980s. Yes. Yeah, that's a very (laughs) different relationship. Uh Uh-huh. The one question I did have is Reed was going to give his students an A if they gave up their phone. Did you promise Rachel anything if she successfully gave up hers? I didn't get anything. Okay, uh, how about how about this then? Uh, later, I'll take you out and I'll buy you a DC Talk CD and a Bob Ross bobblehead. <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. I'm not convinced that going cold turkey and just cutting off our screens is the right way to go, that it's addressing the real problem, partly because even if we get off of our devices... We live in a society that uses them all the time, and we, we can't, and, and Rachel's experiment proved this, you can't really isolate yourself entirely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we take our interns on retreats, we actually do tech-free retreats. But, you know, that's only for three days. And I'm not sure that if we made it, you know, three months, that that would actually be a real solution. You know, small windows of time, that's good. But, uh, you know, no technology as a lifestyle I'm not sure that's really a good long-term solution. This whole time we've been talking about habits, and if you get rid of the phone, it's not necessarily going to change the habits that you've had unless you build new habits to replace them. So yes, part of the problem is the technology itself, but part of the problem, and maybe the real problem, is learning how to better handle the technology that we can't live without. 
Okay, so I think this is a good opportunity for us to go back to Justin Early, the stressed-out lawyer from earlier. You know, when we last left him, he was struggling with his mental health and struggling with his relationships. Uh, In fact, here's another story that he told me. So part of his job was to work with a partner law firm in London. And of course, London, it's five hours ahead. Unconsciously begin to roll over and check my email every morning because London was already halfway through the day. So I'd wake up to half a day's worth of emails. And it never seemed to me to be a problem until one morning I got up because I heard my son cry. But five minutes later, I was sitting on the side of my bed checking emails and I still hadn't gone to help him. And I had one of those wake up moments of how did I become that guy? I didn't mean to be like this. Nobody does. So at this point, Justin starts to realize that, you know, not only his own mental health was suffering, but his family was suffering too. And so one night in sort of a last ditch effort, he asked some of his friends to meet him. I sat down with some friends one night at a restaurant, and I remember putting a piece of paper on the table, and it had a program of daily and weekly habits on it. So he shows them this piece of paper, and it has a list of habits on it that he and his wife had come up with based on things that they had learned in counseling and talking with experts. So I I was asking my friends that night to keep me accountable to these daily and weekly habits. And here's what he wrote down. These four habits were on the list. So habit number one, kneeling prayer. So three times a day, Justin's going to stop and pray. It didn't need to be elaborate. It could be one sentence, but he would pray out loud. This is actually a very ancient practice that dates back to the Old Testament. You see it in the book of Daniel, where he would regularly stop throughout the day and face Jerusalem to pray. It's a practice that has shaped God's people for a long, long time that it's a good one to recover. Habit number two, every day, he would share at least one meal with other people. Here's Justin. Having a a meal with somebody every day, which is designed to counter that sort of um, fast food, microwavable pace of life and actually sit down at the table with either my family or somebody at work each day and have one communal meal. It's interesting that for most of Christian history, gathering for a meal was the centerpiece of Christian worship. It was the Lord's Supper or the communion table. And that says something not just about the way God wants us to worship him, but what we're called to with one another. And so incorporating this practice is just a basic way of making sure we have incarnate human engagement with one another. Habit number three, at least one hour a day, he would turn his phone off. So here's the deal. Justin really found it hard to be present with his kids, with his wife, with his friends, with his neighbors, because... There were always notifications or posts or emails demanding his attention. My presence was constantly fractured because by thinking that I could be multiple places, that is sort of half at the office and half at home, I ended up being no place at all. And so for one hour a day, the phone would be completely turned off. Not on silent, it would be turned off. This is, I think, probably the most sinister temptation that these devices offer to us. They give us the illusion of omnipresence, almost the illusion of being godlike, where we are not limited by our bodies anymore, and through our devices, we can be anywhere and everywhere all at once, which is really a divine quality, but it's an illusion. We can't be everywhere at once. And part of God's good gift to us is recognizing our limitations, recognizing we can only be present 
where we are. And by turning off the phone, we kind of shatter the illusion of our omnipresence and learn what it means to be human again. I have a good friend who says, if you want to know what it felt like for Frodo to carry the one ring, put your phone around your neck and never look every time it dings. (laughs) I like that. That's great. All right, habit number four, in the morning, before he checks his phone, he'll spend time in scripture. So actually on his website, Justin wrote this. He said, daily immersion in the scriptures resists the anxiety of emails, the anger of news, and the envy of social media. Instead, it forms us daily in our true identity as children of the King, dearly loved. I love the list that Justin's come up with, but my question is, how did it go? Did it actually change the way he lived? Yeah, so it can be kind of daunting, you know, to think about implementing all of these habits simultaneously. But one at a time, slowly, Justin started to implement them. And he didn't do them just for a month or for three months. He actually ended up implementing these over the course of a year. And after this year, you know, Justin really started to begin to see things change. I had no idea how much the smallest, most ordinary routines actually do affect our mental life, our spiritual life, our emotional life, even our souls in in deep and powerful ways. But I do feel much, much more rooted, much, much more rooted. So, in fact, Justin still lives by these habits today. And he wrote them down in a book to help others reshape their own technology habits. His book is called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. For our sense of community, our sense of presence, our sense of love, our whole spiritual being, our sense of can we and how we talk to God, all these things I think are actually either threatened or encouraged by our technology habits. And that's a serious, I think that's why we need to take them as a serious component of discipleship. And I just want to point out, like, this isn't meant to be legalism, you know, and that isn't what Justin is advocating for in his list of habits. Our habits will never, ever change God's love for us. That is completely clear. However, God's love for us can and it should, in fact, I would say it must change our habits. You know, we're going to bear someone's yoke either Jesus or something else. And when we bear the yoke of social media, it's really important to know that the the creators of these things, they they don't love us. They're not out for our good like Jesus is. And so I would much rather bear the yoke of the gentle, kind master who loves me and wants my good. So if you hear what Justin's doing here, what he's doing is exactly what Paul was getting at in Ephesians, which was to walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. I think, I think it's important to remember that going back to Paul's words to the Ephesians, Paul wasn't writing those things to individuals. He was talking to a community of Christians. And it's a way of remembering that if we want to change our habits, if we want to change our, our daily routines, it's a really difficult thing to do alone. And it's a lot easier when we have people around us, our families, our households, our churches, our sisters and brothers in Christ who together all want that deeper experience of life with God and each other. And so we can together practice these things. You know, at LTN, we'll talk oftentimes, and I tell my kids this, I'll I'll say like people over pixels. You know, people are more important than pixels and pixels can never fulfill you and make your life meaningful in the way that people can. I think the biggest thing that's terrifying about our relationship to social media is that we believe social media will make our life meaningful. 
when the reality is that only flesh and blood relationships and only our faith in God can give our life meaning. I used to think only what we quote unquote believed and talk about what we believed mattered um, as if true belief was only what you say it is when you're asked to explain it. And now I see belief, you know, as much more of an intertwined um, what you say and what you habitually do without thinking. So just sort of the kind of gut reactions. I've, I've found that my habits, my unconscious habits, are actually a much better indicator of what I really believe. And so for us, it means that we need to do some self-examination. What do our habits say about what and who we love and who we live for? Because of course, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. If you'd like to learn more about Justin Early's daily habits, check out his website at thecommonrule.org. For even more resources on this topic or to hear past episodes of this podcast, visit our website at lovethatneighborhood.org slash podcast. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Justin Early, Drew Mosier, Reed Shushard, and Rachel Zabo. Special thanks also to our listeners who responded to our poll as well as called in with their own personal stories. Also, special thank you to the young adults who let me ask them about what happens when they're bored, Taylor Lindsay, Hong Shu, and Janelle Dawkins. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Sky Jatani from the Holy Post podcast. Sky, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Listen, check out Sky's show, The Holy Post. It really is one of my favorite podcasts. It is one of the few podcasts that almost all of the LTN staff listen to consistently. You can find The Holy Post wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And our producer, technical director, editor, and president of the DC Talks fan club is Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Scott Holmes, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian Community by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org. Serve for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. 